I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Hey there, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. I'm your host, journalist, author, researcher of weird things, Aaron Sagers, and you can also catch me on 28 Days Haunted on Netflix and Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and the Max streaming service. And today we are talking about UFOs. I know it's a lot to talk about. So more specifically, we are talking about this book, We Are Not Alone, The Extraordinary History of UFOs and Aliens Invading Our Hopes, Fears, and fantasies and it is written by mark hartsman one of america's leading connoisseurs of the bizarre according to abc's not abcnews.com and he is the author of several books including the big book of mars and chasing ghosts and his love for the unusual can also be found on his site we weirdhistorian.com and Hartsman covers scientific evidence cover-ups conspiracies governmental and military findings and an overview of both well-known and little-known ufo sightings and alien abductions in the new book we are not alone which is available now mark you thank you for joining me today yeah thanks for having me Aaron. i appreciate it yeah i'm i'm excited to be speaking with you and um you know the I guess launching into this, what was your first kind of introduction to this topic? Was it as a little kid, a little curious nerd, or did it come along a little bit later in life? Well, it, it definitely came as a little kid. Um, I always liked weird stories when I was a kid, for sure. I bought, it's actually on the shelf behind me here, I bought Communion back in the late 80s when that came out as a kid. And then I had those Time Life books, those Mysteries of the Unknown series. I had the UFO one, of course, along with a few others. So the topic always interested me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really start writing about it specifically until really around until when I was working on the Big Book of Mars. Um, yeah. That came out in 2020. So in, the, in the, you know a couple of years before that, I was writing about beliefs in intelligent life on Mars and then some of the um, early UFO theories from the late forties and early fifties that thought that Martians might be piloting the UFOs people were seeing kind of in a response to the atomic age kind of flaring up and all that sort of thing. So that kind of got me going on it, which I I loved. I loved diving into a little bit and clearly there was so much more to talk about. Um, So that led the way to writing. We are not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember seeing in the acknowledgements that, uh, yes, you did mention communion, but also those time life mysteries of the unknown books. I had those as well. They seemed like they indoctrinated a lot of us at a young age. <laughs> and it was also for me. So I think I remember the, just the very sharp, glossy pages in those books, which could give you a nasty paper cut. <laughs> and, yeah. and then from there, Things like Unsolved Mysteries and repeats of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. So it seemed like we had these childhoods where it was steeped in this. But was there ever a moment where it dipped away a little bit and you were like, you know what? I'm going to set aside these weird pursuits and I'm going to be a serious person. I I don't think I've ever set aside the weird pursuits. I've, uh, <laughs> I always I always love the weird I mentioned, you know, getting the into UFOs a bit as a kid. I also got into sideshows a lot as a kid. 
And so I pursued that avenue a lot as well, written about sideshow performers. So to me, all these all these are sort of on the periphery of of you know sideshow and um you know ghost, paranormal, now UFO. So I I love all of it. That's why it's all there on weirdhistorian.com as well. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to be into this stuff as a kid and then to bring it to when the when the going gets weird, the weird go pro, right? Uh the the notion of suddenly becoming this professional journalist uh, researcher of the weird. Uh, I know that you did weird AOL for quite some time. What was kind of the initial uh, professional pursuit of the weird for you? Well, I would say, um, you know, definitely AOL weird news was part of that, but that came out of doing um, my first few books. So, all my books have the theme. The general theme is something weird, whether it's weird history. The first book was weird things on eBay. Um, and then American Sideshow was the second one. After that, uh, I started working with LOL Weird News. My friend Buck Wolf, who was the the managing editor there, editor there brought me on to run basically the Sideshow beat. Um, so I was writing. I had all these, you know, still have all these amazing connections within the Sideshow community so I could find stories to tell that maybe others really couldn't or didn't have access to. So that was that was great. That was a fun gig to be able to write these stories, and you know they had great reach at that time. That was a, a, a very large news organization, so that was pretty wonderful. Um, had some good experiences come out of that. I got to go into Maury Povich show with the bearded lady, who I helped her reunite with her son after thirty years. So some fun experiences came out of that um, on the professional side, and then I've just pursued it with the books. You know, on on the mm-hmm. side during the day, my day job is in advertising as a creative director, so I'm. When I can, I can infuse some of this this weirdness into the work, um, but it's nice to have this outlet for the weird pursuits. Yeah, so I've spent a lot of time in that that old Huffington Huffington Post office as well, and you know I know Buck and the the thing that I I'm always wondering is, do you think New York City is a weird city? Um, it it certainly has its weirdness i think maybe some of that's been kind of going away a little bit uh yeah there were some weirder spots as i remember from uh you know going back to the late 90s early 2000s but the thing that really got me going was one of my favorite places in new york city was called the freakatorium which was a small little museum on the lower east side run by a sword swallower who i became friends with and that helped really kind of pave the way for my sideshow book as well um but i loved places like that just places with odd quirky things and things you're not going to see in most any other city in the world. Yeah. But yeah. You uh, more of it. Although it seems a little bit, and this maybe is just me editorializing, but it seems a little bit like New York city. I was, lived a long time there. I think perhaps because we're so busy and caught up in our own personal weirdness that we sometimes miss the weirdness around us or above us. Uh, you know, even like, and I know you, you've talked about ghosts as well, you know, there's less of a seems like less of a drive in New York City to explore the haunted, to explore the UFOs above us than in other towns. Maybe maybe that's a misread. Would you disagree with me on that? I think I think there's just so, so much. Right. So it's there, but there's so much else as well. Whereas maybe other smaller towns, that's kind of their bigger thing. Like I, I have a friend who runs a company called Burroughs of the Dead. She does ghost tours in all the boroughs, which is amazing. Um, there's certainly a few other haunted places that give tours. So so there's an element there. But yeah, I guess it's just competing against a lot of other interests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, boroughs of the Dead. Adrian or? Yeah. Andrea uh, yeah. Jones. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
small world, man, small world. Yeah. <laughs> well, with this book, with We Are Not Alone, what did you approach this as sort of a book for beginners on this UFO topic that want to catch up to speed since this is a very hot topic again? Or did you kind of approach it for uh, meant for longtime fans? You know, I, I like to think it's for a little bit of both. I think for beginners, I, I definitely think there's a lot in here that will get you very well caught to speed in terms of the history and some of the more, you, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, some well-known cases and some uh, far lesser known cases, but also just the path and, uh, you know, what's going on currently in terms of the UAPs and, and the government's involvement and, and, and the admission that there's something in our space, in our airspace that we don't know. Um, I get into that whole story of how how the New York Times broke the story in 2017 that's kind of helped, you know, get rid of the stigma around the idea of UFOs and the, sort of the background of that. Um, but also just going back through, you know, when the UFOs were first really became a thing and when flying saucers entered the lexicon and the group of contactees from the 50s that believed they talked to Venusians and flew in spaceships and abductees in the, the decades that followed. So it kind of follows the path of that. And I think a very... Um, interesting way and filled with illustrations. You can see lots of imagery throughout the book. But also, I think for people who, who are familiar with the topic and have read a lot, I, I'd like to think there's a lot in here that they haven't either heard about before or images that they haven't seen um, or new information that they weren't aware of. I had a, a chance to interview so many amazing people, which was a real thrill. And again, covering that spectrum of, of, um, of kinds of people, from ufologists to historians to um, experiencers, abductees, NASA scientists, um, other members of the science community, journalists, people who worked with the government. Um, talked to Leslie Kane, who wrote that article, co-wrote the article in 2017. Avi Loeb, who's running the Galileo Project. Uh, Christopher Mellon and Lou Elizondo, who were you know Im immensely involved in everything that's going on right now. So it, it really does cover a wide range of uh, topics and perspectives. Yeah, there are. There's an incredible amount of interviews in here, and and also a lot of documents that I don't believe we've really seen before. And I want to get into that a little bit, but as it, this is really a rabbit hole that once you go down, you can go quite insane trying to wrap your arms around all of it. It seems like, by and large, we're kind of approaching this through this American lens. Um, is that talk about the decision to do that and sort of where you had to focus in and maybe areas that you wish you had had just more time to expand? <laughs> I mean, I would have loved to 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 expand for sure. There's just so much. In fact, I had to I had to trim to, you know, to get get down to size for the book. But you know, there there is some that goes overseas. I mean, I definitely get a little bit in the UK, especially with Randallship Forest was a pretty big story. A little bit in Brazil. Um, so I try to cover a little bit because I do want to make the point that this isn't uh, an American phenomenon. This is something that's very global. So I thought it was important to cover off on some global instances, but but I did devote more energy, obviously, toward the U.S. Part of that's probably just being because that's that's where I am, and and there's a ton of um, material that was accessible to me. So you know, particularly with like Project Blue Book and the people I was in contact with. So those experiences were all based here. But if I yeah, I would love to have been able to cover even more. Um, the hard part really was narrowing down, like, what do I cover? What don't I cover? And you're right. There were definitely some some rabbit holes where it's like, oh, God, if I go down here, that's going to be another, you know, that could be another 10,000 words, <laughs> which I don't have the space for. There are definitely some stories about 
you know, beliefs in, in terms of like reptilians living among us and, you know, working beneath ground and firefights and all these kinds of things, which I I opted to stay away from that in particular, um, just because if I start going down that path, I, I didn't know where, where else it might lead me. And I had to kind of steer myself back on course with with other material that I felt was maybe more um, of more interest at the moment. Yeah, what what was the metric for that in your mind as far as okay, this is now crossing over into something else. It's because really, if it was just a quote unquote conspiracy theory, well, that could, you know, according to some, that encompasses this entire topic, you know. Um, but certainly as someone that has done UFO conventions and personally been accused of being a reptilian, which I am not, to my knowledge, unless I'm deep, you know, undercover. Uh, but I just haven't been activated yet, but you know, that, that kind of lends into the fringy, but again, it's all fringy from that other perspective of people that don't buy into this at all. Even just asking this question is driving me insane. So what was the metric to like, you know, dancing up to that line and then backing off? You know, it's a good question. I mean, I think part of it was just, okay, well, how much credibility do I think exist within the story to even touch it um and if i do like how much what kind of resources do i have do i have any like you know sources i feel like are really quality that i can kind of dive into so i feel like i'm offering something that's backed by at least something as opposed to purely hearsay or maybe a source that i'm not you know so sure about the credibility so i I guess i kind of backed off a little bit with with that in mind um and also, like I said, there's just so much else. I did have I did have access to a lot of amazing resources and people. So I focused more on, on what I had uh, in front of me that I felt confident about versus venturing off in the paths I was wary about to begin with and not really knowing where it may lead me. Um, so I guess that's roughly an answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to give a concrete one for that. No, it's and it's difficult. But when you're approaching the initial research for this, was there a specific case that you would label as your favorite or perhaps most intriguing the thing that you know you happen to love talking about at dinner parties with the uh the people that are not uh kind of already embedded in this world yeah there's there's a few um for sure that stand out to me Uh, i'm trying to think which one to begin with i'd say one of them i love is uh and we were just talking before we started recording about a mutual friend of ours lee spiegel who had been researching UFO since the seventies and amazing guy who huge help with this book. Um, Cause he knows everyone in the community and he opened a lot of doors for me. Sadly, he passed away in August, but he had his own experience in the mid 1970s in North Carolina, which he shared with me. And he's talked about that in his own radio program, but I loved his story. I actually got to go look through his original files, the files he typed up reports in the 1970s. Um, obviously just to go along with the stories that he was telling me now and it, it's an amazing story where he was basically sent down by J. Allen Hynek. He was running Project Blue Book for the Air Force. And he saw a triangular UFO that he was sent to go research because there were lots of reports coming in. He met with the, the uh, police chief in Lumberton, North Carolina. And the two of them eventually followed reports and eventually f- saw it themselves. Pulled off the side of the road. It was right above them, treetop uh, level off the ground. So not way up. I mean, very, very visible, perfectly silent flashed a beam at his feet. He were with other people as well. I think some other police officers were with them. So this is a guy who I know personally. I don't imagine this guy just making up a bunch of stuff. He did his research. He checked in with local Air Force bases to see 
Were you testing something? Were pilots in the area? Um, none of that checked out to call, to offer any explanation. And, and no explanation was ever given for that case. So I, I love that one just because, one, it's still unidentified. And two, it's directly from someone I know as opposed to digging up something from news reports or, you know, written other books or just, you know, hearsay from someone who told someone else who told someone else. So I, I love the personal connection to that, knowing this guy, knowing I don't think he just creates something out of the, out, you know, out of nowhere. Yeah. And that, and one. not coming from like decades ago. I mean, the, I mean, it exactly. was decades ago, but it wasn't 70 years ago. Yes, exactly. Going back to 70 years ago. Um, so the Roswell case is obviously probably the, the most well-known one. And so that's a, that's an example, I think, where, you know, if you don't know about it, you're going to learn about this book. If you do know about it, I think I've got something new um, that maybe people haven't heard before, which I love. This came from a, um, a planetary scientist who I'd met writing the big book of Mars. Uh, his name is Pascal Lee. He's a brilliant guy, works with NASA and SETI. And so I, I had reached out to him just to see if he had thoughts on the subject um, in general. This was actually pretty early on in the book. Yeah. And so he, he, did give, he gave me a lot of thoughts on his belief in the extraterrestrial life and how it might exist, um, kind of playing off of the idea of the Drake equation, which is an equation from 1961, I think, basing you know, a set of variables that kind of help determine how many intelligent civilizations might exist in the galaxy. How to narrow it down, basically. Narrow it down. They had like 10,000 to like 100 million was their, their narrow down. Pascal Lee thought maybe it's one, and he explains why. And I get into that in the book. He has a whole lecture on it, which is brilliant. But in addition to that, he said, hey, I have a theory about Roswell. And he said, you know, as a scientist, you can't just you have to have data, right? For anything you write, you have to have data and you have to have a peer review. There's a whole process you go through. I don't have to go through that process. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so, um, so we, he's like, I can share the story with you and, and, and you can write the story. I'm like, that's great. You know, let me hear it. So what I love is that he took all the, basically the lore around Roswell and he found um, terrestrial explanations for it. So that lore basically being, as we know, something crashed, um, unusual materials, and then this idea of, of bodies being sighted that were alien-like, right? Like child size, um, you know, gray, long limbs, big heads, the sort of alien tropes that, that we hear. And and so he said, well, here's here's a thought. One is uh, the government eventually came out and said it was called Project Mogul, top secret project with a high altitude balloon that was being used to spy on Russia to check on their you know nuclear capabilities, which... I find makes a lot of sense. You would keep that quiet. In fact, you keep that so quiet, you would cover it up with a UFO story in 1947. So he was suggesting that maybe that was the case. They were using new materials for that balloon, mylars that would not be um, something people would be familiar with if they came across the scraps. But in addition to that, he thought they might be testing the biological effects on a, a body at that high altitude. And to do that, they might have used monkeys and they may have to do that they would have then shaved the monkeys so you'd and then they put like the you know things on the skin to test the biometrics and so forth so then you'd have this gray skin the creature with long limbs probably skinny and weird looking without their fur bigger heads bigger eyes you know so it would definitely look odd child's like in size right maybe three feet tall or something like that um, so he suggested they may have been testing that on monkeys in the high altitude balloon and maybe also trying to train them to take pictures over Moscow. Basically, they push a button, takes a picture, they get a treat as a response. They couldn't do yeah. that remotely at that time. And then it crashed. 
And that's what the bodies that people may have seen at that time, if those stories are are in any way true. Um, so I thought that was an interesting way to account for it. Like that answers what people have seen and said to have uh, experienced, but without injecting aliens into the equation. So again, I, I just found that very interesting. I did find in my own research that monkeys were being sent uh, into high altitude as early as 48 in New Mexico. So who's to say a few months earlier it wasn't happening, but just not um, available for in public records yet. Yeah. And I, I would say that I've, I've read a fair amount about the Roswell case and I'd never, to my knowledge, I don't think I had ever encountered that, that potential explanation. And it, as a theory, it does make sense that even, you know, in the nineties, when we're releasing additional explanations about what took place in Roswell, that maybe the government does not want to cop to the fact that it was engaging in pretty brutal uh, experimentation on animals. So, exactly. which, which you speak about in the book. Um, so, so, okay. So you have, and I, I also have to commend you for Roswell for such a just expansive topic. You are, you do manage to condense it and cover a lot of this material in, in the early chapter. And then you also talk about the Dorito sighting by uh, Lee Spiegel now those are things that you kind of went in having this interest in was there perhaps a case that totally came out of left field that you are not aware of that just really captivated you yeah there, there's one actually i wrote about it in the introduction to the book um so this was something that came up while i was just kind of early on in my research i went to uh a guy named David Marler who runs a, a huge UFO archive. Um, it's massive. He's got multiple collections um, from history. So people have donated. He's got the original Project Blue Book files, like the original record cards from Blue Book. And I actually have photos of some of those in the book, which was great to have the physical thing to, to actually share. I love all that ephemera. And he's just, he's got everything. He's got, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of books and, and massive, you know, uh, file cabinets just packed with case files, all kinds of multimedia. So I was going through lots of his materials and he was really generous sharing his knowledge and, and thoughts on things with me as we're going. And I mentioned I was driving up to Roswell on that same trip because about three hours away. So of course I'm going to go um, to research there. So he told me about a guy that he'd come across uh, a few years earlier who had an experience in New Mexico in Hobbs, New Mexico, but now lived in Roswell. And he was about eight years old at the time. This was 1964. And uh, it was just a, a pretty obscure little case. It did get some media coverage in 64. But the guy never really talked about it again. He spoke a few years later to James McDonald, a UFO investigator, um, a professor, uh, physics professor. So he really hadn't talked about it since like the late 60s until David Marler met up with him a few years back. And then, and then I got to talk to him in Roswell. So Dave put me in touch with him. He said, Hey, this guy's coming to Roswell. Would you want to meet with him? So he did. And so I got to hear his story, uh, which was basically, like I said, he was about eight years old. He was playing outside of his grandparents' laundromat, just in the back lot. And he sees this thing from across the street, uh, just a few stories high, look like a, like a top shape, black top shape. And he was singing. He would kind of move to the left. It would move to the left. He'd move to the right. It moved to the right. And then, as he's doing this back and forth a few times interacting with this thing, 
it shoots over to him right above his head and belches flames all over his head. His grandmother had just come out and saw it. And he was burned basically from like the chin up. And she rushed him to the hospital. There was a burn uh, burn specialist there who treated him right away. When I saw him, he looked fine. He had fully recovered, but he talked about how, how awful it was at the time. Like I said, it was covered in the newspaper. The FBI came and investigated, found no evidence of what this thing could be. There was nothing left that offered any reasonable explanation whatsoever. So that was that was a really odd case. But what made it even more interesting is, as Dave Marler was telling me about it, because he had looked into this um, after he met with this guy, and he discovered a rash of other sightings around just before and after this one in 1964, um, a lot in, in Georgia and North Carolina, where it was just happening. Um, top-shaped objects were were doing the same kind of thing, belching flames over people. There's another story of a guy whose arm got burned in his car. I think it was happening on Tuesday nights. Mm-hmm. Randomly, why? I don't know. <laughs> but I kind of get into that whole thing of like, it's a mysterious phenomena and we don't have answers. And this was a great example. But that was one, you know, that came out of researching one thing and, and talking to someone, you learn about something else. And then you have the opportunity to meet that person and you, you go down that path for a little bit. So um, I love when that kind of thing happens, but that was definitely one of my favorite, I think, obscure stories I got to bring to light. Yeah, it was an ex- obscure one. And it's it's what I liked about that story and, and the other stories kind of in this realm is that it's easy to, easy to dismiss these experiencers or eyewitnesses as wanting to make a buck or gain a little bit of limelight, which is oftentimes even what uh, the government uh, during Project Grudge was saying these people were what they wanted out of it. It's either uh, they had psychological issues, they were mis- horribly mistaken, they wanted a little bit of fame, um, and or mass hysteria. And yet these people weren't trying to really cash in on this. And in the case you're talking about, this little kid, okay, yes, there was some media coverage, very local media coverage, but it's not like this was the time of reality TV where he's trying to get a a series greenlit around his experience and how it's changed him since. This was such a small, a big experience, but such a small little blip uh, in in him talking about it. You were the third person to talk about it with him. Exactly. He didn't want any attention from it. And he's like, I just put this on the back shelf of my mind. He said, I don't, and it's not like he said it was a UFO and aliens did this to me. He basically just said, I don't know what it was, but something weird happened to me. This is what happened. And I don't know what it was and no one else does either, but it happened and completely sincere about it. And yeah, you didn't have any sense that this guy was trying to make something out of it and it certainly he wasn't looking to make a buck or he, yeah. he tried that long ago as a journalist do you find that it's easy for you to maintain that balance of skepticism versus cynicism i mean being open-minded when people tell you a story and asking the follow-up questions as opposed to someone saying uh a lizard man carjacked me and then you just automatically going to well or you're just crazy uh you know because i'll be honest because it's even something that i try to remain open-minded about but you occasionally get those stories where like okay that's that's a little bit out there um how are you with that balance of skepticism and cynicism i like to think you know i I do keep an an open mind um and i like to present in a way I, i really try to not 
I, I believe I wrote this book in a way where I'm not trying, I have no agenda and I'm not trying to skew you one way or the other. What I like to do is present the material in the best way I can. And oftentimes when it's, when I can, here's what happened. Here's a possible explanation for it. Or if there's no explanation for it, leave it up to you to decide what you want to believe. Um, in some cases, yeah, there's some things that might sound overly absurd and maybe I, I walk away from some of that. Um, but in some cases, I'll, I'll give you one example where I thought there was a good reason to include something that I thought was maybe maybe a little bit much. But I, I had met with a woman who claimed to have had multiple abduction experiences and and multiple hybrid children through aliens. And, and on the surface, that, you know, that sounds like that's a big story. Like, OK, maybe, um, but a, maybe a tougher one to to buy into. But what I loved about it was one, again, very sincere about all of this. I, I don't believe that she, I, I do believe that she believes that all this happened, I should say. Um, but what I love is that she was also a camera woman for Baywatch. And and so she was often late to Baywatch because she was having these experiences. And everyone on the on the crew production knew about it. Like David Hasselhoff would ride up to her at the beach, like, oh, did you get abducted again? Like she was telling me this stuff, you know, it's great stories. And she told me at one point, she got there late. The producer said, come on, hurry up. We got to get you down to the beach. You got to see what we've got set up for you. And they had a bunch of radio telescopes all over the beach and they were filming an episode about an alien abduction. So what I love is like whether her story is true or not, and I'm not trying to say it's, it is or isn't. I'm just presenting what she shared with me, which I think is fascinating. But I love that either way, it's it, it's it's been presented in pop culture. It's a part of pop culture now in the form of a Baywatch episode that's out there, which I just thought was kind of fun. Like most stories don't get that, that kind of treatment. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it kind of cool. And it crosses over to a level of, um, I don't want to say necessarily validity, but somewhat verifiable when it's, when it is then part of pop culture, but also part of her workspace. I mean, whether, again, whether or not, it actually happened. She believed it happened and was talking yeah. to other people about it and they were responding to it. Yeah. And something happened. Something yeah. there was clearly something going on based on her own uh her own experience. Yeah. The when you talk to you have a like I said, a lot of fascinating interviews in this and uh, some folks I've had the fortune of speaking to uh, like Avi Loeb and Leslie Keen. And and I also know you speak to Lou Elizondo and with these interviews and maybe not them specifically, but when you're interviewing people, even people that are very esteemed and very well regarded. Is there that potential danger of getting too close to your subject matter to the point of losing kind of that objectivity both you know i mean let's face it when you're putting millions of dollars into a project to search for life out there whether it's seti or galileo or whatever it is do you think there's that potential where you get too close um, again, I think that as long as it's presenting like this is what's happening and this is what that person is doing and why, I, I think that that's okay. I'm not, because again, I'm not saying like, and therefore we'll have an answer in in a year, like, because I don't know, because you're right. right, that doesn't mean that anything's going to come out of it. But what I, what I love about, I'll, I'll just take the Galileo example, because I think it's the last one you gave, but, <laughs> but that's a particular case that I find so interesting 
um, because of, I guess, what's around it and, and sort of the turning point that to me it represents. So that's a case where I think maybe it's not worried about getting too close to the subject, but more about, I think, what, what uh, his efforts represent. So to me, Avi Loeb is such an amazing guy because he's obviously got these incredible credentials behind him uh, from a scientific perspective. Brilliant man who's written a ton and, you know, has Harvard um, behind him. And now because he's got such an open mind to think about things um, and he suggests that maybe Oumuamua, which was the interstellar object that flew through the solar system in 2017, since it didn't align with anything that we know in terms of like comets or meteors or anything like that, maybe it's something else. And maybe that's something else is some piece of alien architecture. And then, you know, again, just be open-minded that that could be what it is. And so because he, uh, he then wrote extraterrestrial, which was a bestseller and, and attracted a lot of attention, got lots of donations. So now he could afford to collect his own data and have access to equipment. And, and because of that, because of his credentials and the, and the donations he got, he attracted more than a hundred scientists to work with him. And that's kind of where I'm getting at like a turning point because there was always a stigma that I think kept scientists away from studying the subject because of people like the contactees who said they met Venusians and, you know, the whole term of UFO is, is stigmatized, which is why we have UAP now. So here's a sudden turning point, you know, attitudes are shifting. Um, UAPs are of interest. The government's looking at it. The ideas, I think what's great about what Christopher Mellon has done is he's talked about as a matter of national defense. Why don't we know what's flying overhead? That's a totally valid question. Whether it's UFOs or not, we should know what it is. And so with someone like Avi Loeb attracting scientists, suddenly you're having that serious exploration, scientific exploration of a phenomenon that we don't understand yet. And so maybe because of that, we could collect data and actually understand it. And what would we know now if people had done that, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Mm -hmm. Um, We might know a lot more now. So I love the potential of uh, of what could come from what he's doing. Uh, and I think, again, it, it took someone like that. It took the circumstances around where we are now to to make all this stuff possible. Do you think that these other groups that are doing this kind of research are also necessary because of, I mean, let's face it, we're in a very divisive time politically, nationally, culturally, uh, globally. Um, and there is, I think, regardless of where you are on a political spectrum, there is sort of this widespread uh, distrust of of the powers that be do you think that these other groups kind of stepping up and doing this research is necessary from that standpoint because maybe people will be less likely to um to to trust congressional hearings and uh and and the information flowing out of um the federal government i i would say there's probably always going to be that issue right like there's always mistrust, I think, of government. Yeah. Certainly, that's we're not in a great spot to make that any better, it seems. I mean, it is interesting that at least they're actually talking about it openly. Um, the fact that they're holding hearings is definitely a big step forward. But sure, I imagine people will question what, what they hear from it, but it is at least a step in the right direction. And uh, interestingly, one thing that maybe you know both parties can agree is worth discussing. That's That's been of interest. But I do think, you know, having actual scientists collecting data. I mean, it's great what NASA is doing and they just released another report today, but you have the serious scientists that people I think are more likely to to trust what they find looking into it. And again, I, I, I'm 
excited to see what we might learn. If it's aliens, that's going to be obviously an incredible revelation, right? But even if it's not, that will still be amazing because we'll still learn something new uh, about our own world, whether it's some new aspect of physics that we just didn't know about yet or whatever it might be. But there's something to be learned. And uh, I think whatever it is, is, is going to be you know incredible for all of us. From your perspective as a journalist and researcher and author, um, both for your approach to this book, but also just to guide other people with media literacy, how would you advise in kind of the, the BS meter of people that come forward with these pretty big allegations about I have an alien body um, or I've seen alien bodies and I used to work for the government versus more credible testimonies. And the parentheticals of that is, look, if if you, you know, worked in a um, records office in your local courthouse, you technically worked for the government, you know. So people come forward and say that a lot without necessarily stipulating, you know, what they did and can they prove it. Right. It might sound bigger than it really was. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I do think it's it's been interesting to watch this happen in the past few months, basically. I mean, you kind of referenced like the the case of the uh, Mexico's Congress with the guy who had the two alien bodies. And and at that same presentation, uh, you had one of the the uh, the Navy pilots who's been more serious about his investigations. And then you have uh, uh, David Grush, who talked about seeing the alien bodies. You heard from someone else who said that they saw this. And he seems very credible, but at the same time, who are these other people? We we don't know. Um, there's a little bit of, I think, still unknown there. And to me, that's a little different than like David Fravor, who had the Tic Tac experience and is a sky flying a F-16 Hornet who's got no reason to make this stuff up. And and I do believe knows what he's doing <laughs> and saw saw things with his own eyes. So to me, that's a little bit different. And what's interesting is, you know, I talked about how the stigma I think is going is finally going away, but then you have some of these cases where I feel like, especially the, the case of Mexico, where okay, now you've got people creeping back up, which are going to muddy the waters again to some degree, because now just when you start taking it seriously, you've got this, which to me goes back to the fifties with the George Adamskis of the world who met Venusians who looked like us but better and flew the Venus or. Uh, you know, Howard, Howard Menger, who married a Venusian, had Venusian children, supposedly, you know, like all these, all these things that made it harder to believe there was something serious going on when you got this stuff going on. So I I do wonder if they're causing any harm to the more serious approach that has been taken toward the subject now. And, and I hope, I hope not, because like I said, it's been a long time since it's been taken this seriously. And I, I, I hope that continues so we can find some sort of answer one way or the other. I mean, I do think that it's damaging because, I mean, in this, again, this could, we're talking about UFOs and UAPs right now, but it's also just applied to the way we uh, ingest and digest information uh, overall. It seems like, you know, there's the old expression that a, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. And now it's a tweak can travel around the world twice while the truth, while the truth is still hitting snooze. You know, like, um, and so I do think it's damaging, but it is also interesting to see that people are fascinated and intrigued with the topic, which I actually think that your book, We Are Not Alone, is important because 
it is is kind of bringing people through this process of like where where have we been and how did it progress and where are we going and it's you know this book could not have been written in 2017 and and even chapters of this from 2021 you know you've expanded on already so and every day it seems like there's new material coming out for sure yeah do you think ultimately from your perspective that truth whatever truth is whatever disclosure is do you think it's going to come from a government or do you think it'll come from people documenting you know walking around with uh you know computers in their pockets and cameras everywhere and you know just pointing up at the sky or seeing things where where do you think this notion of disclosure will come from or from one of these uh other kind of educational or independent operations i kind of suspect the latter um honestly uh, it seems like the the best chance to to find something tangible it's that's you know everyone can agree is is for real uh, it'd be great if if someone captured something uh, that's the thing I think Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson always talks about. There's like a billion phones in everybody's hands. So why don't we see something good from it? Um, that'd be great to see something that was irrefutable. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, so who knows? Maybe it will. But I, I don't know that the government's just going to come out and say, okay, you're right. You know, we do have flying saucers in Area 51 and here's the bodies that you heard about. It's hard to imagine that happening. Um, but, you know, it does seem like some of these other third parties, independent parties might actually start finding some real information or, or actual data that shows it is, is real. And I mean, that's, you talked about the truth and, and the lies. The truth just takes time, especially, um, you know, from a scientific perspective. And, and I have a, a comment in the book about the fact that people, you know, it, it takes time to, to learn and understand and science takes time and people don't like to wait. <laughs> for that mm -hmm. so we fill in answers on our own and when we don't know the mind goes to you know what it can imagine and that's often um an alien or a ufo so who knows again maybe it turns out that that is the case i mean there's certainly uh, i think a lot of intrigue around that i mean there's exoplanets discovered constantly there's i think more than five thousand been discovered in the past few decades which is remarkable and some of those being in a goldilocks zone where they could host life so could that have developed into something intelligent like ourselves and over the course of time the timeline that that we're on and you know found a way to get here and traverse those long distances who knows but i feel like we're getting close to the answers with that um so yeah i think i think i think something may come but i think it'll be more from the scientific community discovering one way or the other what's yeah. going on i i do like what uh, Avi Loeb is doing. I mean, looking for these kind of techno signatures, these artifacts of technology. Um, I'm fascinated by his search with that. For you, uh, well, first off, have you seen anything in the skies? I I haven't. Um, the closest I think I came to seeing something was actually when I went to New Mexico to to start researching this book, and. I was kind of in a remote area outside of Albuquerque, staying at like a Airbnb type of place. And like 10 o'clock at night, I, I had just gotten back to this, the place and I thought, I'm I'm just going to look up at the stars because it's a beautiful sky here. It's not like it is here in New York. You know, it's I'm out in New Mexico and I just want to just gaze at the stars for the, the sheer beauty of it. And so I see like something up, up there, like, you know, 
tiny pinpoint size like the stars just going like this and i'm like I'm, i literally like rub my eyes like am i am i like are my eyes tired like what's going what is that like everything else was still and this was just zipping all over the place just kind of in one area but all over the place which i i honestly don't know what to make of what that was nothing seemed to make any sense with that i didn't know if it was my eyes or my brain playing a trick on me but I saw it that night, and then the next night I saw it again, like about the same spot, just looking up. So that would be the one thing where I thought, like, am I am I seeing something? I don't know, but uh, nothing like what Lee Spiegel saw, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, it's such a moment of um, I didn't grow up in New York City, but having been out to Albuquerque, having uh, just recently I was out in uh, Utah, Nevada, and when you're out in that and you in the under those stars you're looking at the expanse of the galaxy and you're seeing something moving around up there i feel like such a a, a dumb city boy because i'm like could that is that because you know i do want to believe i do want to yeah. have those experiences and i'm like no that's probably just a satellite or no that's just a plane but that moment of could it be is it you know the new york city boy out yeah. in the the wilderness seeing this thing <laughs> there was what one of those shows i forgot what the show was exactly but ben hansen who's a has yeah, a i know show ben yeah he's he's great so he's he's in the book i forgot what the show was but he was with a few guys i think one of them i think a few celebrities or something out in utah and they're looking up and you know ben's really smart and he knows what's what like he knows what he's seeing when he looks up and, and it, some guys had the same kind of response you like, oh there's something ben's like He's got his iPad up with like the the flight pattern. He's like, no, that's a plane traveling from here. He's <laughs> like, that was exactly what it's like. Oh, oh, you ruined it for us. He's like, well, I'm just telling you, like, yeah. that's that's identified. That one's not unidentified. I can tell well, you right there. And I'll let you go in a minute, but I'm curious: is this still fun for you? I mean, after doing oh, yeah. all the research, yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I. To me, every, all these books have just been such an amazing journey. You know, I, I meet people I never thought I would meet. I get to hear incredible stories and experiences, and I love, I love sharing them. To me, that's what these books are. It's me sharing stuff I'm fascinated by. Uh, I mean, you can see that these these two shelves here are all UFO books, and part of it is like I get to buy a bunch of stuff, and it's all for research. You know, <laughs> I like having it. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy it, and I hope other people enjoy what I put together. Uh, when you're at like the International UFO Museum or you're doing the research on these other topics, are you still you're I know you're a serious journalist and you're you are approaching this topic matter with a serious eye. However, when you find yourself underneath that giant flying saucer model with the uh, the gray statues at the uh, Roswell Museum, are you still snapping uh, selfies in front of those things? Oh, I mean, how can you not? <laughs> Good man. It's all part of the fun. I mean, I love the fact that Roswell's totally embraced it. You know, anyone watching, if you haven't been to Roswell, they've got they've got like a 24 day alien holding up a Dunkin' Donuts sign and a McDonald's shaped like a UFO, like a flying saucer, and all the street lamps are alien heads, the the classic, you know, alien head with the, the big eyes. I think it's fun. I mean, I like that they've embraced it and they've turned it into a you know tourist attraction and they get to share some history. And again, you make up what you want, but I I, I really do enjoy it. Yeah. It goes back to the kind of the 
referencing pop culture is that they don't it doesn't have to be a separation of church and state in this matter you can embrace the fun and the lore and and yeah. have a bit of, you know have a bit of fun with it while also saying but we actually also think there might be something going on out there yeah exactly i mean whether something whether it was ufos or not it's it's impacted our culture in all kinds of ways right the things that entertain us movies and books and and tv shows so much of that comes from these kinds of experiences. So in one way or another, it's affected us all. And, and I think probably a, a more fun, interesting way. And of course, if it is, if there's something real with it all, then it, it just gets even more fascinating. So to me, it's, it's all good. It's just, you know, again, how you, how you present it. And again, not pushing one way or the other, just presenting material uh, that hopefully is fascinating to everybody. But where do you land? Do you think there's something out there? I, I think that there probably is something out there. Yeah. I think, um, like the book says, we are not alone. Yeah. Well, my guest is Mark Hartzman. The book is We Are Not Alone, The Extraordinary History of UFOs and Aliens Invading Our Hopes, Fears, and Fantasies. And it is available now. I would recommend checking it out. It's also just a really nice presentation. The people at QuirkBooks know how to put out a good book. It, it feels good. Uh, and Mark, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was great. Appreciate this it. This was a lot of fun. And I am Aaron Sagers, and that's it for me in this episode of Talking Strange. Until next time, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash denofgeektv and youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And please follow at TalkStrangePod on Twitter and at Aaron Sagers on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon for more paranormal pop culture content. Mm -hmm.